We are in part five of our Philippians series called Ambassadors for the Kingdom, and I entitled today's message, A Life Worth Living. And I want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank with just a couple thoughts. The first one is this, our reputation really matters and yet really doesn't matter. And what I mean by that is that our reputation about how people see Jesus in us really, really matters. Once again, many people will not want to come to church. They will not engage with the Bible themselves, so they look at God's followers to see what he is like. That reputation matters extremely. However, the reputation about how do people view me and what do they want to say about me and have I become popular enough and is everyone positive about me. That whole idea of building our own kingdom, yeah, that doesn't matter. So we need to be able to say that in one way, our reputation is very important to hone in and make sure it is glorifying to God. But in another sense, we got to let some of that garbage go if y'all following with me, right? So in the same way, I just want to say throughout this whole series, ambassadors are carrying a message with their lives. So the big question is, what is your lifestyle saying about the God that you serve? When people look at you, what do they assume God is like? If they see your posts on Facebook, what do they then think of God? When they hear your conversations in line, what do they assume God is thinking or talking about? What testimony are you living out even despite the words that you say. Because sometimes the words we say and the lifestyles we live don't always go together, right? So we need to realize your life is actually speaking louder than your words. So the fill in the blank is this. Our living testimony matters a lot. Our living testimony matters a lot. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. If you need a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. It's around page 981. 981 should get you there in the area. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to go from 14 through 30, but most of the message is front loaded at the beginning. So if you go, wow, that guy's going so slow, we will never leave here. It is possible. However, I front-loaded the message so that you're going to kind of dig in a lot with me at the beginning, and then we start picking up speed as we go through. So once again, do not despair, my children. At some point, we will complete this message. All right, moving on. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to read just 14 and 15 and then talk about it a little bit more in detail. Paul, writing to the Philippians in what we know as modern-day Greece, a church that he planted 10 years earlier, he said this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So right off the bat, Paul said, I don't want you to grumble. What does grumbling mean? If you look in the King James Version, they translate it as complaining. 
Grumbling in the dictionary means muttering in discontent. So what kind of heart is a grumbling heart? It is a discontent heart, right? Now, I just want to share with you a little bit that God really doesn't like grumbling. How do I know that? Well, I read the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are a number of stories that talk about grumbling. As a matter of fact, it uses the phrase specifically 26 times in the Bible. Now, I went back through and I looked at all those. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story. And it usually involves the nation of Israel and the desert. So here's kind of how the story goes. Right after we had the, what, let my people go thing, right? After we had the Moses get them out of Egypt, they then had to go to the promised land. The way to the promised land was through the wilderness. Right out of the chute, they started grumbling. Now, when they grumbled initially, they grumbled about some pretty legit stuff, right? And God did not get mad about that, but their attitude towards a legitimate need wasn't awesome, but God gave them a pass. What were they grumbling about? Things like, we don't have any water. Now, I don't know if you're aware of biology, but water's really important. So I consider uh, the, the wisdom of drinking a lot of it very healthy. They didn't have any. So we got two mighty miracles. One was where there was undrinkable water. They drug a tree into it and it became drinkable. The other one was water out of a rock. Those both involved grumbling, but God didn't say anything negative. He said, all right, I'll take care of you. The other one started kind of crossing the line that they said, we don't have any food that we like. Now, he's going, all right, you need food, whether or not you're complaining and saying, we should have stayed as slaves because if we died in Egypt, at least we had good food right? He said, when you start getting an attitude like that, you're crossing a line. But he gave them two things miraculously. One of them was that he blew in quail so that they would be able to have meat. The other one is he gave them a magic bread. Y'all remember that? It's called manna. manna, right? So every morning they would have this amazing, miraculous stuff kind of show up and they'd gather it together and they could make bread and a bunch of different things through it. All right, so this is where it starts, but it didn't stop there. By the 10th time it mentions them grumbling, they're on the edge of the promised land. It's not that far away from Egypt. So it was pretty early in the story. God said, all right, kids, I got you free. Now I want to give you a home. He marches them straight across and they're on the edge of the promised land. He said, all right, go get it. And they said, well, before we do that, we want to look at what we're getting into. So they send out spies to check out the land. How many spies did they send? Twelve. Twelve, that's right. Two of them became famous. We know them as Joshua and Caleb. However, twelve went out, and for 40 days, they examined the land. They all came back with a couple similarities. One of them was, dang, that's amazing land. The stuff you can produce there, the amount of vegetation that comes out of that dirt, the amazing blessing, we would call it a land flowing with milk and honey. It's an amazing place. They all said that, but then they also said this, dang, those people are big. 
And what they meant was there are some huge warriors in that new territory, and we are just small Jewish people, and we've been slaves for four generations. We are not warriors. So there's no way we're going to go in there and take over anybody. Those guys are trained. They're massive. When they say massive, they're even talking about the Anakite people, the Philistine people, where we get people like Goliath, right, from David and Goliath. So when they say they're big, they're not just kind of big, they're super big. And they're like, we are not going in there. 10 of them said, we're never gonna be able to do it. Two of them said, if God said to do it, he will empower us to do it. And we believe by faith that we can go take that land. Unfortunately, the majority, the 10, started stirring everybody else up because here's the problem with complaining. It doesn't just stay in your area. When you start complaining, it affects everybody else and then they start seeing the world through your lens. And so complaining is highly infectious. Grumbling is highly infectious. It starts spreading everywhere. These 10 spies spread the story of if we go in there, we're all going to die. Well, it stirs up the whole community so much, they grumble against Moses and Aaron and God. And they say, if we go in there, we'll die. Let's get rid of this leadership and get new ones. Now, this is where they've crossed the line. God gets super ticked off. So here's what he ends up saying to them. This is the final verdict. He said, for all of you that have grumbled against me, this entire community, not trusting me, not listening to me, and thinking that you're in charge. What did I just do in Egypt? I got you guys out of 400 years of slavery, and you're telling me I can't handle this. Because of your lack of faith, because of your bad hearts, I'm going to have you wander for 40 years in this desert. 40 years, why? For every day that you are out there spying out and saying we can't do it, I'm gonna make you walk for, for a whole year, 40 years in the desert. Not only that, but the 40 years are gonna make sure every single one of you over 20 are dead by the time we get done with this. I am not letting faithless people into my promised land, so I'm gonna wait for you all to die. I'll let your kids come in, but I am not working with this group anymore. That's pretty severe. Can we all agree that God doesn't like grumbling, right? <laughs> If that was not enough, you know what happened to the other 10 spies? They all died from a plague. So God was like, listen, do not stir up garbage. Do not cause a problem in my people. Look at what you've already done. And he shut them down. Now, you would hope that that's when everyone goes, hmm, God doesn't like grumbling. I'm not going to do that anymore. But I think we're all clear that human beings have to hear things a billion times before we do anything about it, right? You don't just hear one sermon and go, yep, all fixed, thank you, and just walk on. That's not our thing. So here's what we found out. We find out that not too long after that, they began to uh, complain that Moses and Aaron we're trying to be big dogs for no reason. And they said, I don't understand why you get to be around God. We're all from the same tribe. We're all just as good as you. We are just as talented as you. We think you're on a power trip. So we want to have equal access to God and you call your brother high priest 
That's a little weird. That's like nepotism. You're bringing your own brother in. He's like, dude, I didn't even choose this job. I didn't choose for my brother to be high priest. This is God's idea. They're like, no, it wasn't. This is your idea and you're manipulating us. So we're against you. At that point, Moses goes, I don't know what to do with you guys. You know what? Let's let dad sort it out. So we said, here's what we're gonna do. You bring all your leaders in. And there was 251 leaders against them. And it was all the major leaders, right? So this was a huge crisis of leadership for Moses and Aaron. So they said, here's what we're gonna do. Everybody prepare your offering of incense. We're gonna offer it before the Lord and we're all gonna stand by and let him sort it out. So they offer it. Interestingly enough, God first says, I would back up from those guys if I were you. That's not a good sign. And Moses said, hey, if nothing happens, I'm not your leader. However, if something super weird happens, I am your leader. Right then, the earth opened up underneath the main ringleader's whole household, all of his tents, an earthquake splits the earth open, they all fall in, and it closes over the top. That's a sign. <laughs> now, the other 250 leaders that were against them, they all freak out and they all try to get away and fire from God comes out from his altar and burns alive every single one of them. Now, that's hardcore. Right? And you go, wow, God really doesn't like grumbling. Now, one would assume that that too would have been a sign to mellow out. They all get mad at Moses and Aaron for that whole thing and start blaming them. We want other leadership. How dare you kill all of our leaders? And they're like, why do you keep blaming me? And that's when God goes, enough. I'll kill them all. And he comes in with a plague. By the time Moses and Aaron are done praying and interceding for him, 14,700 people are dead. Okay, don't grumble. Does that make sense? Okay, now here's another thing. Just want to give you, this is just a little side note. You may want to jot down some notes on this one. If anyone ever wants to depose me as a pastor of this church, and all of a sudden fire shoots out from nowhere and starts incinerating people, let it go. Does that make sense? Like just a little word to wisdom there, right? <laughs> okay, good. Because if weird stuff like spontaneous combustion starts happening, it's probably a sign from God. All right, moving on. You didn't need to write that down. Okay, here we go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says these weird stories in the past, God did extreme events one time so that it would be an example for us to follow afterwards. Obviously, he's not constantly blowing up people that are grumbling. If that was the case, our church would be empty, right? <laughs> so the fact that we're still here means he's doing it differently now. Okay, praise the Lord. But here's what is fascinating to me. When Jesus shows up in the New Testament, the same word grumble is used of the Jewish religious leaders that stood against him. They grumbled against Jesus. That's not, an, that's not 
an error. That's not um, random. That's very purposeful. The same word grumbling is used. What did they grumble about? Three times in one book, they grumble about who Jesus hung out with. They didn't like the fact that he spent his time with a common man, that he spent his time with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't like the fact of who his people were. They grumbled and grumbled, those people aren't worth it. Those people are garbage. Those people aren't one of us. We don't care about them. And Jesus stood up for them and said, those are my people. They grumbled about the fact that he said that he was the Messiah, and they said, no, you're not. And it wasn't enough to just discuss it with him. It wasn't enough just to debate it with him. Their hearts got mean and nasty inside about it, so much so that they wanted to kill him and get rid of him. And you go, well, I would expect that of Jesus's opponents. The problem is, is that the word grumbling was also used of his followers. You see, Jesus had a lot of disciples. I know you go, well, he had 12 disciples. That is incorrect. He had 12 apostles. He had many, many disciples. A disciple is someone that follows after Jesus. At certain points in Scripture, it says that multitudes followed him. Huge crowds followed him. They were his disciples. If you followed consistently, you were a disciple. But one day, Jesus dropped a very heavy bomb on his people. He said a phrase that was controversial, and he didn't qualify it. Here's what he said. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And then left it there. Nobody knew what to do with that. They found it offensive. They didn't understand it. And since the fact that he would not explain it and he would not share with them the heart behind it, it says, and they grumbled at him and followed him no more. Is it possible for Jesus to give you a message even in church, where you go, forget it, I don't want to be a Christian anymore? Or as a Christian, do you have the heart that says, my master can tell me anything, and I'm going to follow him? Because, you see, when people start grumbling at God, it usually comes from one of two things. One is arrogance. The second one is bad theology. We'll talk about that in a moment. There's one other area where grumbling is used in the New Testament that I wanted to highlight, and that is this. There's a parable Jesus taught. He said there was a man who had a huge field and was wealthy, and he went out early in the morning to a bunch of day laborers waiting around trying to get a job, and he said, well, I can give them work. So he goes up and he hires a whole crew, enough that he needed. He brings them in. He said, hey, guys, I'll give you a denarius. For a, day's way, for a day's worth of work. They said, right on, thank you, sir, because they wanted the job. A little while later, he goes out, and there's still people hanging out in the marketplace, and he's like, guys, what are you doing here? They're like, well, we haven't got hired. He said, all right, I'll just make up jobs for you. Cool, how about you guys come with me? I'll share my wealth with you. I'll hire you. They go out and start working. Goes out later. More people are still sitting there. Guys, what are you doing here? Well, nobody else needs us. We don't have a way to make a living. All right, cool, I'll take care of you. Come on out and work for me. He goes out one hour before the closing time and there's people still out there. And he's like, I cannot just leave you here. My compassion doesn't allow that. All right, come on, come on out and work for me. And they're like, okay, that's great, thank you, sir. They go out, well, when it comes time to clear up the bill for the day, he gives everyone the same amount. He gives them all a denarius. Well, the people that just got there for an hour were pumped. 
Everyone that worked all day long, not so happy. They were super mad and they grumbled against him. And he said, hold up. When I hired you, you were excited about that. What did I tell you I was going to give you? A denarius. What did I give you? A denarius. Then why is this not fair? I did exactly what I told you. Well, they got more and they worked less. And he said, well, hold on. First of all, you never want me to give you fair. You understand? You want mercy and you want grace. You don't want fair. If I'm going to give you fair, we're all not talking, right? So here's the point. I can give to whoever I want to give, but the fact that you're now grumbling about it means that you allowed the enemy in your own flesh to steal all your joy. You were excited that you got a job. You were excited, but now you're not even excited about the job anymore. Now what I gave you wasn't a blessing. Now suddenly it's a curse. How have you allowed your heart to go so far away? Is that us? Yeah, it's us. God gives us this, these great things. Most of our prayer requests of today are founded on prayers answered a couple days ago, right? Oh, Lord, I'm so stressed out. About what? About the job. Oh, you mean the job that you prayed that I'd give you? Yeah, Lord, these kids are killing me. Are they? You mean the ones that you prayed for me to give you? Right. So everything I answered before has now become what? A curse for you? So you got more prayer requests to give me, and you're constantly telling me that I'm not giving you good things. That is not true. You see, when our hearts start getting negative like that, it's hard to get out of that cycle. So what kind of heart grumbles? A discontent one. Sometimes we grumble against God, right? And you know what? Sometimes it is from bad theology. Some of us aren't arrogant. We just think that we signed up with God a different way. Let me give you an example. Some of us ignorantly believe that we sign some type of contract that says, God, if we do all the stuff you say in the Bible, everything's going to go well for us. God never signed that contract with you. That is not how it goes. But unfortunately, when you think that's how it goes, you start blaming God and saying, I did my part. You're the one not doing your part and then there's a blame that's attached to it. Just understand, that is not how the Bible works. That is not how God works. But some of us, if we don't get mad at God, we just grumble about life and circumstances. But ultimately, if you're a Christian, who's in control of life and circumstances? God. So who do you think you're really complaining against? But in this particular context of Philippians, where Paul is trying to correct a church who has a bunch of leaders and people that are divisive and not getting along, he actually means don't grumble against one another. Don't complain about other people. Well, why would we do that? Well, here's what we're going to be talking about. We have small groups here at Bridgeway called Missional Communities. And if you're a part of one of those, here's what we're going to be talking about this week. Do you live a life with a heart that grumbles? Are you a complainer? Now, most complainers don't realize they're complainers. You might have to ask your spouse, right? Here's the other thing. What do you grumble at? Is it God? Is it life circumstances? Is it other people? We all grumble to some degree, but is now a part of our personality and our identity. What can we do to lessen that? What, how can we live more thankful? You see, when we start grumbling about each other, and this is a big thing in our world today, that now it's completely cool to publicly 
trounce on other people. It's publicly acceptable in social media to be mean to other people. It's completely acceptable to say, not only do I disagree with you, I don't like you. What's, what we would never say in person, we say through social media. What we would never say in person, we say around behind people's backs. That is not okay. That is not the way of the Lord. And if we see Christians doing it, there's something wrong because that's not how Christians operate. So are we grumbling or do we have thankful hearts? But what's interesting is we know that he's talking about grumbling about other people because he links it to another word, which is disputing. Do not grumble or dispute. That's something that you do with other people. What's disputing mean? Well, listen to this. There's a big difference between debate and division. Debate and division. Listen to me. There is nothing wrong with conflicting opinions. There is nothing wrong with diversity of thought. The problem is how we handle our disagreements. So there's something that we teach very strongly here at Bridgeway, and if you've ever been to one of our welcome, introducing Bridgeway, meet the pastor type things, we always share this with you. Bridgeway has a few core tenets that we all agree on. We usually follow something that is very similar to the Apostles' Creed. Who is God? Who is Jesus? All these different things. That we agree on, and we're all on the same page. But those are very few things. Everything outside of that we call a secondary issue. In secondary issues, even among our leadership and our elder board, we have diversity of opinion. That does not mean we divide over it. It means that we go, well, I don't necessarily see it the way that you see it, and we can actually have what's called dialogue, right? Where we can talk about other things and go, dude, I don't see that in Scripture at all. What are you talking about? Well, no, 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 it says right here, but that doesn't mean we start attacking the person. That doesn't mean that we start getting mad at them and their heart just because they disagree. We can always discuss principles, but we don't attack people, right? That's kind of the heart of a Christian. So here at Bridgeway, I just want to encourage you, if you look up and go, man, they seem to be teaching this concept, and I don't know if I agree with that. You're allowed to disagree with that. Now, you have to make a determination whether or not you can remain in a church with something that is very much in disagreement with your views, but you're not supposed to be attending church just because it agrees with all your views, you're supposed to be attending a church because you're learning and growing. You are walking into a high challenge environment. I wanna remind you that all the time. I'm gonna get in your business and our leadership is gonna rattle your cage. Why? Because you're in a place of transformation. It means we're trying to bring in different thoughts that are godly and moving you from where you're at right now to where we believe you need to be. But in order to do that, we are constantly pushing change. Nobody likes change. So at some point, you may say, I don't know if I can go along with that. All right, but I sure hope that unity is so important to you that you would say, if I ever have to leave a church, it makes my heart sad a little bit. There are some people that go to church and they are waiting for the church to give them a reason to leave. There are other people that go to church that say, I will do everything I can to stay. Very different attitudes. One is a safe family member, one is not right? But we need to realize if you are ever looking for 100% agreement in everything, don't get married. <laughs> Amen? Well, this is what I'm trying to tell you because here's the deal. 
Susie and I, January 7th will be our 25th wedding anniversary. That is a quarter of a century, right? It's a long time. Man, we don't agree about a whole bunch of stuff, right? But that doesn't mean we divide, right? We have remained united, but we still have differences of opinion. On our elder board, we have differences of opinion, yet we're still a united front. Here in our leadership, we have differences of opinion, but it doesn't mean we automatically split the family. We make sure that we have healthy dialogue and then we what? Have a humble attitude to try to partner together as much as possible. That's very, very important to me. Now, let's keep moving forward. Unity is difficult because people are irritating. Write that down. Okay, praise God. He said, he said, I want you to have a reputation for being blameless and innocent. What does that mean? The Bible never teaches that we in and of ourselves are going to be perfect. Jesus makes us perfect. He imparts to us his perfect nature in our spirit. But as far as how we're operating on the outside, we are a work in progress. So what is Paul calling for? He's saying, what's your reputation insofar as your testimony of Jesus? Are people able to look at you and say, oh my gosh, I didn't know they were a Christian? Are people able to see in your life scandal? You understand what I'm saying? Scandal. So here's, this is unfortunate. So I walk around super proud of Bridgeway, right? You know, it's kind of like this dad that has this, his family and he always wants to talk about his kids. So when people say, what do you do for a living? I very proudly tell them that I'm a pastor at Bridgeway Christian Church. And it's almost like I, I proverbially open up my wallet and pictures of all my kids roll out and there's like thousands of them. And I'm like, ooh, look at this one. Isn't she cute? Oh, I love this one. Isn't this awesome, right? And I'm showing everybody what's going on. But periodically, I'll talk to someone that doesn't go here in the community and they'll say, they go to your church? I didn't even know they were a Christian. That's really hard for me because then all of a sudden I'm like, oh shoot, one of my kids is not living a good testimony. They're out there in the community and people are saying, man, if they go to your church, I don't want anywhere near your church because those people are mean. Man, that breaks my heart, right? We don't wanna be those types of people. So that's what Paul's saying. Watch your life testimony. What type of conversations are you having and what's the outcome of some of your conversations? He said, I want you to be seen as children of God. Children look like their parents. A couple times I've uh, initially embarrassed myself. Later on, I was very proud of my ignorance. And I said to people, oh my gosh, your kids look just like you. And they said, well, they're adopted, <laughs> right? So at first I'm like, oh, that was awkward. And then I realized, wait a second, hold up. It doesn't matter if they're adopted or not. They start looking like their parents. And a lot of times you can't tell the difference. And that is the coolest honor because we have been adopted into God's family. And we're supposed to look so much like dad, everybody just assumes that we're the natural born kids. You know what I mean? Because in God's economy, it doesn't matter whether you're adopted or you're natural born, everybody's family. So it's all the same, but we need to be looking like our dad out in the world. That was his point. He said, I want you to live without blemish in a twisted and crooked generation. How do we live as good Christian people in a society that's pretty, pretty much falling apart? How do we do that? I'm gonna use the same quote I used a number of weeks ago. It is not the water outside that sinks a ship. It's the water on the inside. You guys, we were built 
as Christians to live and rise above and ride upon society. It's only when society gets in us that we start to sink. Paul said we are in the world, but we are not of the world. What that means is be careful of the junk on the outside getting on the inside. As long as it stays on the outside, we were built for this. We were built to be wandering through life in messed up environments and being a blessing. We were built to be in complicated environments and to shine out like stars. This is what he said. He said, I want your life to be like shining stars. Real quick question. Where's the best place to see the stars at night? Where? Usually up in the mountains. Why? Because you get away from what? City lights. It's called ambient light. Anything that's like street lights and all that stuff, it ruins your ability to see the stars. Why? Because it waters everything down. Light is getting into your eyes and it's not dark enough. The best place to see the stars is in the darkest of nights, right? So here's the problem in our world today. We live here in modern day America, which has a Christian hangover. And what it means is a lot of people were raised with Judeo-Christian principles, and they were told to be good people. Good people means externally moral. When you have a bunch of people walking around being moral, and then you have a bunch of Christians trying to be moral, they look like the same thing. There's so much ambient light, it's hard to tell who the true Christians are. One of the benefits of our nation sliding deeper into darkness is Christians start to shine more. You can start to see who's who, and people start seeing a difference between that person and that person. That Christianity is not simply about sin management and morality. It is about an internal transformation and new life. Amen? Amen. Let's keep moving forward. Verse 16, told you. He said, we need to be holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. There's only one thing I want you to know about this, and that is Paul sure sounds like a dad. Why? Because here's what parents say. Here's what healthy parents say. If at the end of the day, I am completely spent and wore out, but I have raised my children well, and they are thriving and launched, I'm good. I don't need more for me. I want more for my kids to thrive. Amen, parents? That's what I'm talking about. When you hear that, you know that a good parent is moving in on that, right? So how is Paul saying Paul is saying what? Man, if you guys as a church are doing awesome, I don't care if I've been completely poured out for your benefit, but please don't just disappoint me and just say, oh, I'm not into the Christian thing because I've been killing myself to make sure you had everything that you need. Now, in our groups, we're gonna be talking about a dream that I have for Bridgeway. I dream that all of us would hold one of two identities here at Bridgeway, spiritual parents or spiritual siblings. Either one is entirely fine. When I talk about leaders here at Bridgeway, I use a phrase called spiritual parents because it's more holistic than simply leadership. Leadership can be transferring information from one to the next, but a parent wants everything about their life to be equipped, 
right? So I want my leaders to be looking out over the congregation and saying, hey, how you doing over here? You okay here? How's your heart doing over here? Well, what's going on? Are you struggling with something? I know that's not my area, but I care about you so much. I want to make sure all of you is good. That attitude of a leader is what I want for every one of us. But some of us, by personality, we're not shepherds. Some of us, by what? Life maturity? We're not quite there yet. Okay, great. If you're not a spiritual parent, you're at least a spiritual sibling. So what happens when you're a sibling? You get defensive for each other, do you not? Right? The rule for all siblings, I can punch them, but no one else can. Right? Okay. So here at church, we get defensive that if the enemy starts attacking our brothers and sisters, we get defensive and we start praying against that stuff. We are the ones that care about how they're doing. We're trying to figure out a way to encourage each other. That's my dream for Bridgeway. Let's move on. We're going to go on to verse 19. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news about you. For I have no one like Timothy who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. For everyone else seeks their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Here's the only thing you need to know. Not only is he reintroducing Timothy to him and saying, I'm going to send him soon if I can, but he's using Timothy as an example of what they should be. Here's what he said. Man, Timothy is super concerned about you guys. How come your leaders are bickering? You know, it's interesting because Timothy is really all about Jesus's agenda and not his own. Why are your leaders arguing? You know, it's interesting because Timothy has always been a helper to me in the gospel and pretty low maintenance. Why am I having to write you a letter correcting you on a whole bunch of stuff? That is all a subtle way of saying, don't we all need to be more like Timothy? Ah, that's a correction. Take a look at verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He is your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Not only is he saying, man, Epaphroditus, I'm sending him back to you. He's been one of your superstars. You guys sent him to me originally with a gift. I'm now giving him this letter. So when he arrives... I want you guys to not blame him. Oh, why were you gone so long? And if you would never went, you wouldn't have got so sick and we were freaked out about you. Not only is he talking about how good a guy he was, but he says two things that are very powerful. Number one, Epaphroditus was sick, real sick. How do we know that? Because Paul said he was sick. Now, if I say you're sick, I'm a wimp. I'm a hypochondriac. I think everything's cancer. So if I say, oh my gosh, they almost died, everyone's like, did they really? Or did they just have a cold, right? 
But if Paul the apostle, who has what, been stoned to death, beaten with rods, lashed till he almost died, been in imprisonment, been in three shipwrecks, if that dude says you're sick, you're sick. You are literally going to die. So Epaphroditus was going to die, and Paul said, and I couldn't heal him. I want you to just let that soak in for a second, because if there was ever a time that Paul wanted to heal somebody, it would have been Epaphroditus. He said he was even anxious about his sickness. Why didn't Paul just heal him? You guys, Paul is one of the most anointed and uber-gifted healers and miracle workers in all of Christian history. How do we know that? Because the Bible talks about him that way. Do you remember the story where it says even his work aprons and his handkerchiefs were brought to people, and when they laid them on them, they were healed and demons were cast out? If your laundry does that kind of ministry, you're pretty rocking. Does that make sense? I don't know anybody else that's more anointed than that dude. But Epaphroditus wasn't healed. Why is that so important? Because some of us have the misunderstanding that a true legitimate healing anointing healing gift or healing ministry means you can do it anytime to anyone you want under any circumstances. Do you realize that not even Jesus had that? Why? Because in Nazareth, he did not do many miracles because of their lack of faith. Even the Father shut him down from doing certain healings. The bottom line is God is always sovereign. If you have ever prayed for someone's healing and it didn't work, and I've done that thousands and thousands of times. You feel really sad afterwards, and you feel pretty let down. I want, to, I want you to know this. If you've ever prayed for something and heard a no, you're in good company. Remember, not only did Paul hear a no, but Jesus heard a no in the Garden of Gethsemane. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It means there's something you're not tracking on, and he's aware of it, and he's not gonna do that this time in this circumstance, right? The other powerful thing as we close out that I think is really amazing about what we just read is this. He said he was going to die, and God had mercy on him. And man, he had mercy on me too, because he spared me sorrow upon sorrow. Okay, real quick show of hands. How many of you think that Paul had a pretty good, pretty good understanding of theology? Raise your hand. Okay, great, because he wrote it. Pretty solid on his theology, yeah? So he's the one that said to me, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He's the one that taught us the concept that we go from glory to greater glory. He is the one has helped us understand how awesome heaven is. So if he knows all of that, why is he sad if his buddy would die? Because there are some of us that ignorantly have been taught that if you are a super good Christian and someone dies, you should just go, they're in a better place, move on. That is not how human beings work. If you are shoving down the grief process because you think that your theology is saying everything's cool, you're forgetting a big piece. Paul knew his theology very well, but if he would have lost his buddy, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow. Why? Because Paul wasn't concerned about Epaphroditus being okay. He was crushed because he was gone. It doesn't matter whether your theology is awesome, he's still gone. You guys, when I look back at the loss of my dad last year, I know he's okay. I know he's safe. Why am I still sad? Because I don't have access to him. And honestly, that's part of the grieving process, you guys. It is not like, well, if you only believed God more, you wouldn't be sad. That's garbage. 
Paul knows his theology and he would have been crushed. Can I have the prayer team come on up here as we close out? You guys, I think a lot about legacy. What are people gonna say when we pass away? You know, we were talking about our living testimony matters and, and how we, we are walking testimonies and stuff like that. Here's four things I sure hope happen when each and every one of us die. First one, I hope everybody around us says, man, now that they're gone, I feel like the kingdom of God is advancing slower because they were so hardcore in wanting what Jesus wants. I felt like they were always pushing the kingdom forward. Man, they're gone. I hope that every one of us at our eulogy, at our passing, people say, I just lost my greatest cheerleader because all they do is boost me up. Every time I'm down, they're constantly saying, but think about what the Lord said, but think about what the Lord said. God is good all the time, right? That idea, are we gonna lose a great cheerleader? The third thing that I thought was, man, now that they're gone, it feels like there's a little less Jesus around because they were such an embodiment of him, it felt like he was around more. Now, I know theologically that's not true, but it sure feels like that. And then lastly, I sure hope that when all of us pass, we can pass without regret. Well, here's what I hope all of us can say on our deathbed. Lord, I didn't do it perfect, but I gave you what I had. That's it. You guys, it's not about perfection. Did he have your heart? Okay. So when you get to the end of life and you're saying, Lord, that's all I had. But how cool as opposed to saying, God, hey, I'm super sorry about that and I completely wrecked this. I wrecked these people and I wrecked. I would love for there to be a peace. You may be stressed about something else, but I don't want you stressed about your walk with God. I want you to be able to go, we're good. It is well with my soul, amen? As we close out in prayer, the altar is open and this prayer team is here to love on you and pray about anything that you have need. If you wanna know more about walking with Jesus, that's what they're here for too. Just come on up and ask them, how do I follow Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so kind and so good. You're so patient with us as we try to sort stuff out. I pray right now, Heavenly Father, that you would rescue us all. God, I pray as well that you would just encourage us as we walk out of here that somehow, Lord, we allow the world to kind of get us into this complaining mindset, this grumbling attitude, like as if that's okay. But Lord, you have demonstrated in your word that it's not a good idea. So God, in the name of Jesus, we cast out all that garbage and we say we don't want that. We wanna live thankful lives full of gratitude. We wanna bless the people around us. We wanna be that cheerleader, that shining Holy Spirit moment for them. God, may each and every one of us live lives that glorify you and tell everyone that you matter. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.